Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the world of priesthood dispatches, where we tell your stories from the front lines of high demand religion. Hello world and welcome back to the Priest of Dispatchers channel. I'm PD and you are all here with me this evening. It is the 6th of March 2022 and what a Sunday it's been. This evening we are privileged to be joined by um, a, a member of the Community of Christ upper leadership team. And to say that is shocking because we just never thought that there would anyone from any upper leadership team in a large world religion would speak to the likes of us. But it's just amazing um, that Stacey Cram will be joining us this evening. But before we get on to our guest, please take a moment to like this video and subscribe to the channel and share it wherever you feel comfortable. And if you feel that you can contribute towards the channel, please use a link in the description below. Okay, quick bio. Here's the important part. Stacy D. Cram serves as a member of the First Presidency of the Community of Christ and counselor to the President of the Church. She also serves as the presiding bishop of the presiding bishopric, the highest financial council in the church. Her past assignments include serving as a member of the Council of the Twelve Apostles, a member of the presiding bishopric, as a counselor to the presiding bishop, and the Southwest Pacific Region Administrator and Stewardship Commissioner. Stacey received a Bachelor's of Science in General Engineering from the University of Illinois and a Master's of Arts in Organizational Management from the University of Phoenix. She received a Master of Arts in Religion from Graceland University and a PhD in Organization and Management from Capella University. Previous to full-time ministry for the Community of Christ, Stacy was employed as a flight test engineer for the United States Air Force. Community of Christ has 250,000 members in more than 60 nations. The church's mission is to proclaim Jesus Christ and promote communities of joy, hope, love and peace the community of christ international headquarters are located in independence missouri so in the words of the famous jeffrey r holland stacy is not a dodo um and let's bring her in now stacy welcome to the show thank you so much pd it's good to be here with everyone no great um i bet you you have heard that bio so many times so many times and i'm embarrassed every time i hear it <laughs> yeah 
it's so impressive though um just yeah your, your your level of education working for the air force and now the community of christ it's just fantastic to have someone with us who is able to give us authoritative answers to yeah what's going on in world religion these days and also to be here oh sorry as a a small surprise for everyone we also have a a guest presenter on tonight's show because he has his own campaign uh, to bring the law of common consent back to the utah mormon church and that is the one that only nemo the mormon hi everyone how are you doing? Not too bad, not too bad. Quite excited, because uh, I hear the Community of Christ are quite the revolutionary lot. So very excited to uh, kind of pick their brains on how we can better kind of turn the system upside down, as it were. Yeah, you, you might wonder how Stacey's actually ended up with us this evening. Stacey's the unfortunate one that presented at Sunstone UK. And Stacey said in her presentation, you read out your email address. And coming from the Utah Mormon area, you never get the email address of um, an apostle or a member of the first president. Yeah, I thought we'll test this. I emailed during your presentation. I emailed just to thank you for the presentation and then never thought I'd hear anything. And then we went out for a meal afterwards. And within that hour, Stacy had replied to my personal email and we all sat there at the meal and were absolutely flabbergasted um that a member of the first presidency from the community of christ had replied so quickly um so that was your mistake you replied and and then we got you well i'm glad that i replied and i look forward to being able to chat about common consent and some of the topics that are on our list tonight i think they're important for all of us yes and we we have um we have a long list we may not get through everything but i think we'll get through the important things uh, we've we've done some good preparation for this evening so hopefully it won't be the usual shambles um that everyone comes here to enjoy uh, but i think first one thing to say before we get into all of this is we know that the majority of viewers here have experienced Mormonism through the lens of Brigham Young and the Utah Church. And that what you'll experience this evening will be different to that. And almost as me and Nemo said before, an alien landscape, but a good alien landscape. Um, It's almost like coming out of North Korea and realizing that there's a, a whole other world out there. So when we compare things, we're not comparing to say one is better than the other. We're comparing so that we can um, reference our experience and your experience. So in no way is this a, is one better than the, uh, the other. We'll, we'll put that up there um, to start with. We're, we're simply, yeah, using one to reference the other in some cases. Not all, just some. So... I guess the the one place that everyone started uh, with all of this was way back um, with the Prophet Joseph Smith and the schism 
as such and where we parted ways was following um, the death of the prophet Joseph Smith and the Utah church followed Brigham Young West and we know that for a while um, there was coming from the Utah church it's very great and I think they make it very great um, Stacy could you maybe tell us what happened in between time um coming from joseph's death to forming the restored church of jesus christ of latter-day saints or reorganized sorry yeah so well first of all there's been a lot of names as you've just noted um so there was a gap in time uh, after joseph smith jr's death it was about 16 years and part of that was where his son joseph smith the third um, was being raised by Emma and her second husband. And, uh, you know, it was long about, you know, just before the 1860s, there'd been a lot of ongoing conversations as Joseph Smith III grew up about getting the church pulled back together, about organizing the followers that um, had not joined some of the other movements that had occurred. So in April of 1860, that's when Joseph Smith III was ordained and agreed to become what we consider to be our second president prophet of our church, because we, we, like you, share Joseph Smith Jr. as our first. Um, so that started the process, and ultimately, we took on the name Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in modern-day times, we have changed our name to Community of Christ. We still have a lot of legal records that use the RLDS name. So we use both names really at this point in time. And our journey has been pretty dynamic. Uh, we were part of the restoration movement. And I think the word movement actually claims who we are because we're continuing to grow and become as we listen to the leadings of the Holy Spirit and try to be faithful to what God's calling us to be. So today I serve with President Stephen M. Vesey, who's the eighth president of um, our particular movement. Again, one starting with Joseph Smith Jr. and then Steve being number eight and and then, you know, a handful of others in between. So there's a lot we can say, but that's kind of the beginning of and, and where we are now. No, that's great. And for anyone that has seen me frozen in very unfortunate um, frames. I apologize um, for my internet connection, which is clearly not amazing this evening. Can you hear me uh, loud and clear? Yeah, get your kids off the Wi-Fi, PD. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they should be. Uh, well, I think what's important as well with regards to the community of Christ, obviously you said that there have been different names and different um, phases, I guess, of the movement, as you call it. And in the 1960s, there was a large kind of shift in your um, beliefs about the history of the church, etc. Um, could you explain briefly about what happened there? Yeah, so um, a lot of things were going on in the 1960s, both in the church and in the country and in the world. And I think um, what we were experiencing was a combination of all of those. But part of what happened was uh, there was starting to be material brought forward as certain generations passed and their family members made available, you know, trunks of 
diaries and journals and other material, uh, we started to get glimpses into what they had recorded about their experiences in the ch uh, church in previous years. And so, so part of it was just in the availability of information. And as that happened, we started to understand that, that the basic story that we shared as our history was, was flawed. It did not represent some of the best facts that we were beginning to understand as new information came out. And as you can imagine, that created quite um, a, a rock of, of the foundation. You know, it really shook things up as people struggled with what they were hearing and tried to make sense. And, and, um, and we had to sort things out. And Ultimately, as we looked backwards, we, we now have six principles that we refer to that describe how we approach history. And one is that the continuing exploration of our history is an important part of our identity formation. So as we learn new things about ourselves, even bad things, that's okay, because it helps us it helps us repent, it helps us understand, it helps us do better going forward. The second is that the history informs but does not dictate our faith and beliefs. Our faith is ultimately in God. Our history is the story of humans and how they interact and interpret and try to respond to the divine. Um, but ultimately, our faith and belief is in God. The third is that we encourage honest, responsible, historical scholarship. We want people to go deeper, to, to pull back, to, to look for the blemishes and the flaws that might have existed in our storyline, again, because we can only do better if we learn from what we've done in the past. And uh, the study of church history hasn't ended, so it's an ongoing, continuous journey. We continue to look backwards, even as we're looking forwards to try to understand. The fifth is that seeing both the faithfulness and the human flaws in our history actually makes it more believable and realistic, not less believable. Because if we if we have a perfect story and then we're living life in a very imperfect world, it makes us feel like we're not able to be as good or do as well or be as faithful as all those people that went before us. But the reality is that humans have been and always will be somewhat flawed. And the sixth is that responsible study of church history involves both learning, repentance, and transformation. So we don't talk about the history of the church to tear things down. We talk about the history of the church to be honest, um, to learn, to repent when things didn't go well, to celebrate when things were miraculous, and to be transformed by our previous story as we continue to write our future story. Wow. Where can I sign up? <laughs> <laughs> Is there a form? Or... <laughs> Nemo, can you imagine if, um, if those six things were implemented in oh, the Utah man. church, the number of apologists who would lose their, uh, like their careers mm. in a day if they just said we we own it, yeah, we are going to learn from it. It can change as information comes forward, and we will use it for better. Rather than we will hide it, we will twist it, reframe it, and just tell you not to look at it. Because the tenets almost of what I do are very similar to what Stacy just described. There, mm -hmm. in that my opinion is we can only 
we can only improve by being more open and honest about the way the church started um and so I'm, I'm i was there thinking as you were talking about videos i've done where the church has tried to obfuscate around ideas of you know when joseph smith was initiated into freemasonry versus when the endowment started things like that to me it doesn't matter that those things were happening at the same time that doesn't undermine joseph smith's claims the more troublesome thing would be to try and deflect from that and try and insinuate that one of those things had nothing to do with the other um so a more honest approach is really quite refreshing the idea that you say well yes he was you know he was a member of the lodge and yes the endowment came about at the same time let's have a look at that let's examine that history let's not try and remove those two things from each other so i'd like that yeah i think our call as disciples both then and now is to do the very best we can to interpret and make sense of of what we're experiencing in the world and to find the best of that and integrate it into our discipleship sometimes we pull in things that maybe don't fit well and then we have to be able to identify those and and further transform so we would never as a as a world or as a humanity we would never identify things like racism or sexism or all of the different isms if we can't honestly look back and see mistakes that we've made mm. so i think i think our future is bright when we can look backwards and learn and repent and transform oh fantastic um, so another thing that maybe was fate, um, and it's unfortunate, um, but this past week, the world has changed and turned on its head for a lot of people. And, um, as podcasters here in the UK, we've already been, um, on air speaking about the church's response, etc. but our interview has been set up for five or six weeks and obviously we had no idea what was going to happen this week previous to that but I would say that um, with regards to this question um, to ask what the community of crisis uh, reaction has been to the situation in Ukraine as the presiding bishop you're probably uh, you know as, as the, the head of the financial arm etc probably the top person we could ask that question to um, so in one way, it's a happy coincidence. In the other way, we, we uh, are thinking of those people who are suffering at this time. Um, but yeah, what's, what's the, the church's response being there? Yeah, so the situation is horrific. I mean, it's just, it's so disturbing on so many levels as we watch um, the news stories and listen to what's happening. So uh, the church obviously um, has responded with a huge outpouring of prayer. So we have, there's been a lot of prayer vigils that have been held around Community of Christ. And um, of course, we're in the Lenten journey right now to Easter. And so, you know, people are trying to provide support to each other in that process. Uh, financially, Community of Christ has, um, at this point, we've provided it's not a lot, perhaps, especially from an LDS church perspective, but you've got to remember our, our finances are a little bit different than, than what you're accustomed to. 
but we provided um, $20,000 to four international agencies who are providing a variety of aids. So 5,000 to each one. That was just an initial support because we just, we were aware that we could not be on the ground. And so uh, the focus was humanitarian support for those who were um, leaving the uh, Ukraine to try to place them, to try to make sure that they had mm. basic necessities met. Um, one of the uh, one of the groups that we gave money to was focusing on the children in particular. Um, on a more practical level, we have uh, members in both Russia and Ukraine. Um, we have retired employees that are in Russia and Ukraine. And so we are trying to stay in contact with them. Um, some of our ability to transfer payments and stuff have been uh, blocked uh, because of sanctions. And so we're trying to find ways to um, to make sure that our our people on the ground are supported just in their, you know, in in their expectation and needs for personal flow of income. So it's um, it's really such a mess. And and uh, we're in the process right now of talking about the role of nonviolence in our um, world. And so that's an interesting conversation as we now watch the world engaging in war. So we really would prefer that the countries could move to diplomatic discussions and trying to find a pathway that does not wreak havoc on so many innocent people. Well said. Okay. Yeah, I think um, I'm not that, that still. I'm frozen again, just so everyone knows. Um, I could never be that still. Nemo, I think the the refreshing thing is there that what we've been encouraging people to do all week is to donate to charities that are on the ground mm -hmm. doing the work directly. Yeah, I think it shows. I think it shows a large amount of humility on the part of Community of Christ in some ways to say rather than insist that it be our people that do something, we will just support those who are already there doing something. Right, we can we can take the responsible action of ascertaining that certain groups on the ground are trustworthy and will use our money appropriately, and so we will happily give uh, money to them. And um, also, I'm just I'm very grateful for the transparency of you telling us exactly how much you've given and to whom, essentially, um, because you say you know uh, it's community of Christ, so the amount of money you have isn't the same as the earlier stage. Uh, less money used well is better than lots of money not used at all is what I would say, quite simply. So I yeah, I applaud that. And um, I think it's it's a really good example to people uh, of giving well to organizations that can have an impact. I stood in my ward today and um, basically encouraged people to donate to charities that are on the ground because there's we don't know what happens to the money in the church's humanitarian aid fund. There's no transparency there. So... Um, it's been accruing in the UK for quite a while, not being spent. So I'd hate for people who are wanting to do well for their money not to mm. uh, have the impact that they wanted to. I think the interesting thing, Stacey, sorry, is okay. um, on the donation slips, when people are giving their money, they have a nice little catch-all at the bottom that says that they will endeavour to use the money the way that the member is uh, designated but that basically they'll they'll do what they wish um with the monies and yeah that's it just disappears into a, a large hole somewhere so it's fantastic thank you so much for being open about that um 
So that's. Yeah, we realize that some of our members don't have the capacity to, you know, research where to give. And so, you know, so where we are receiving contributions that are marked for Ukraine, um, that allows us then, you know, to, to do the research for people and then yeah. pass them along to other organizations. So, yeah. I mean, at this point in time, having having feet on the ground and knowing the area is what's most important. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we felt like, like you were saying, um, Nemo, that, that using people that really know what they're doing mm. is, is really the best way for us right now. Certainly. Just to your point there, P PD, um, the wording on the bottom of the tithing slip is, the reasonable efforts will be made globally to use donations as designated all donations become the church's property and will be used at the church's sole discretion to further the church's overall mission. That's, that's, that's a nice get out of jail free card, isn't it? Yeah. Um, okay. Anyway. <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to move on to what is one of the hot topics uh, that we want to speak about this mm. evening. And that is the law of common consent. Yes. And to take us through that and to, um, I guess, glean as much information as we can um, from yourself, Stacey, we will hand over to Nemo. So, Stacey, first question right off the bat so that everyone understands, what is the understanding from a community of Christ perspective of the law of common consent? What is it to you? Yeah, so um, just for clarity, we probably would never put the word law in front of it. So I understand that's, you know, your language. Mm -hmm. But for yeah. us, it's an ideology, um, you know, so common consent is is central in our polity. It means that it's something more than majority rule. Um, at the same time, we understand that common consent means something less than full unanimity on the action being taken. So, you know, there are some world religions who will not make a decision until the whole body agrees 100%. And, and we've never gone to that extreme. But we also feel like, especially when we're making very big, important decisions that have the potential um, contentious nature to them, that getting just a simple majority, which is the minimum required by Robert's rules, which is our parliamentarian authority, um, is just not good enough. You know, I mean, if you've got 51 percent for and 49 percent against, you know, should you really lean into something? And so with us, common consent is trying to determine how much of the body's agreement do we need on a particular topic before we move forward. Mm -hmm. It's also key to us because Joseph Smith III, uh, he said he named our polity as that we were theocratic democracy. And um, I think that those are really an important term because um, that acknowledges that the Theo part, you know, acknowledges that we, you know, that God's involved and that making decisions is about trying to make decisions that are faithful to God. The democratic part is that the people have a voice in trying to discern what God is leading us. So in the midst of being a theocratic democracy, we look to common consent to help balance um, uh, you know, both the people and the leaders as we seek to make decisions of how to move forward. Okay, uh, smashing. Um, the question that's come up on screen, I think the natural follow-up to that is, uh, just so you know, I'm a bit of a dissenter, according to the LDS Church. Uh, <laughs> don't know if PD pre-warned you, um, but I will, I will stand and oppose um, when I disagree and I try to take the, the common consent 
policy as seriously as I can. Um, and we'll talk about that in, in a few moments. But from your perspective, how are dissenters, which is the language used in the LDS handbook, someone that, that votes opposed is labeled a dissenter, how are they dealt with in Community of Christ? Yeah, so um, we would, the only time I really recall in kind of my lifetime seeing the word dissent was back in 1988. Um, and that was following the approval of Section 156 into our Doctrine and Covenants, which um, authorized the ordination of women. And that created quite a level of dissent by some people in the church. And so to navigate how we were going to get through that time, our Standing High Council wrote a statement on ethical dissent. And the purpose of the statement was to acknowledge that sometimes when big decisions are made, not everyone agrees. So I guess what I would say, I, I would want to point out just because someone votes no, doesn't necessarily mean they're a dissenter. So I would say that for us, dissenting goes to the next level. I voted no, and I'm really so opposed that it's you know, I have a conflict with the direction the church is now going. And and so the idea of ethical dissent was to say a person can stand opposed to a particular decision of the church, but still be committed to the overall mission and mm -hmm. desire um, to see that mission lived out faithfully. Mm -hmm. and, and so in that happened back in 1988. In 2013, as we were in the midst of starting to have national conferences to talk about the ordination of people in same gender marriages um, or in same gender relationships, we recognized that that those decisions, uh, if policies changed, were going to have uh, another potential to create a big rift in the life of the church. And back to looking at our history, as we looked back to the 1980s, we realized we wanted to be able to do better than we did in the 80s because we lost a lot of people. And we did kind of draw a line. It was like you're either on this side or you're on that side. And a lot of people left the church. So in March of 2013, we put out what were called the principles of faithful disagreement. And um, and so those principles are, again, to acknowledge that just because someone has a different opinion than the direction the church is going doesn't mean that they are being unfaithful. It means that in this moment that their discernment has taken them to a different conclusion, um, but that we're all committed still to the same mission. And so the principles of a faithful disagreement um, are are lifted up to say that we, we ask that people attempt to support the church, to speak in the constructive ways, you know, to be willing to share, um, you know, a person's opinion and perspectives at the right time. But, you know, in public ministry and other places that we center on what pulls us together and we focus on, you know, God and living Christ's mission and the faithful disagreement principles not only talk to what should the people, how should the people behave who disagree, but it also challenges the church um, to say that you cannot ostracize or you cannot, you know, box off people who disagree on a particular opinion, that we have to continue to hear their voice, that their voice is important and that we have to continue to struggle together. And I can say that coming through, for instance, the USA National Conference in 2013, we had people who were 
not happy with the outcome of that conference. Uh, and yet um, we did not lose nearly the same number of people. And we have managed to find what our common ground is in mission. And mm -hmm. so I feel like the principles of a faithful disagreement have really have really helped us. Not to say that we've arrived. I mean, we can always do better, but yeah. um, but I think we're doing a lot better than we did in the 80s. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, as a point of contrast, I suppose, uh, I've spoken publicly about the idea of loyal opposition um, and kind of how that can be useful to an organization uh, and how um, a and how, how we've been told in uh, in the kind of Brighamite sect that um, loyal opposition has no place in the church, in the government of God's kingdom, which seems kind of antithetical in some ways to, to what you're saying. Um, but I appreciate this idea that you have a place where people can remain faithful and yet be opposed to an idea or a concept. I would ask, when people are opposed, what is the mechanism by which they can share their reasoning because of, often people are opposed with reason um so how do they how do they make that reason known how is that reason considered if someone has a reason to oppose something yeah so let's let's talk about two ways so um and i'm going to get into a little bit of details here but i feel like sure. the details are important for what we're talking about so if we were just doing um, if we were in a legislative session at a conference, like say you were at, you know, your your what we would call our congregation conference and you're making a decision um, and you're get, but before the vote, someone's made a motion to do something. And before the vote is taken, there's open dialogue about it. Mm -hmm. We typically participate in what's called the rules of alternates which means you know, someone will talk in favor of the resolution and then the presider will call on someone to speak to a, you know, someone who's opposed to the resolution. Okay. And, um, and that's just good, healthy debate. So you know, we mm -hmm. go back and forth between the pros and the cons, the pros and the cons. Yeah. And then you know, ultimately then a vote gets taken and, and potentially you know, we see then how well supported the item was. So that's kind of the traditional Robert's Rules of Order. And we do... Um, that has been our primary decision-making method for many, many years. In recent years, we have expanded that experience to say, okay, most of the time people are not, uh, you know, our decisions are not binary. I'm not either, it's not yes or no. Often I'm on a spectrum about how I feel about something. And so we've now um, started doing a lot more questions um, where we will ask, what's your level of support for? And then whatever the topic happens to be. And we will ask people to respond on a scale of like one to five. Um, what you're seeing on the screen then is kind of the second part of that question, which is um, after people have responded like, I'm a one, I have low support, or I'm a two, I have limited support, or I'm a three, I have tentative support, or I have moderate support, or a five, I have full support. A lot of times we'll follow up then with a why question, and we'll ask the ones, why do you hold that level of support? And we'll ask the twos and the threes. Mm -hmm. And why that is so important is because it becomes kind of a an automated fashion for the body 
to see what the spectrums of, of opinions are with regard to support, and then also um, see from the why standpoint why people are holding that. And what's really cool is I've been in conferences, the USA National Conference would have been one where we were considering um, same gender partnerships. And what was interesting is the reason behind both those who were in favor of accepting same gender relationships and those who were not in favor was a commitment to scriptures. So what we learned was, okay, scripture is what we all have in common, but we are interpreting scripture and applying it in different ways. So it was very informative yeah. to the body, but it also helped bridge because at least we could celebrate we all have scripture in common. Yeah. So that's just kind of a really that's amazing how it works. Can I ask a follow-up question to that, please? Yeah. Um, so, do you? Uh, so, coming from an LDS perspective, or a you know, whatever, coming from, from a Brighamite perspective, um, the only thing I ever get a chance to put my arm to is the sustaining of church leaders, right? So, this sort of level of questioning and dialogue and constructive feedback about how I feel about certain policies and procedures never happens. I'll get sent the odd survey by the church and then the the leaders get to claim it as revelation down the line but um this conversation never happens so is there a similar point where you as a member of the first presidency are sustained by the membership of the church do those sustaining votes happen yes cool. um every world conference all of the leadings of our, our all the leaders of our general uh quorums are sustained by the world conference and is it is it a simple question uh we present these people for a sustaining vote and then people sustain or oppose? yes so it okay. happens in two ways one when someone is new to a quorum mm -hmm. um adding them to that quorum is voted on individually mm -hmm. So, you know, so when I first went into the presidency mm -hmm. and presiding bishopric, um, my call to that position was voted on individually and, mm -hmm. and the body had the opportunity to speak to it as well. Mm -hmm. But every conference where we meet in conference every three years, the body is asked to sustain all of the leaders in mm -hmm. total. Um, so we okay. don't re-vote on every one. So you can um, probably see where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not going to put you in a position of, you know, commenting on any of my beef with uh, with Dan Nate Jokes or his ilk. But uh, as as is well known, I'm in a position of opposing members of the first presidency. So say I was a member of Community of Christ. And at this three yearly meeting, you, Stacey Cram, are presented as part of the first presidency for a sustaining vote. And I oppose what happens. Well, if if more than half of the people opposed, then I would not be I would be removed from the quorum. Oh. Wow. OK, uh, what if there's just a smattering of individuals? How would you go about hearing their voice or hearing their concerns? Um, yeah, so, it, it, again, it kind of depends, but okay. so, but mostly like in the quorum meetings, because mm -hmm. um, when all of the delegates are together, there's 2,900 people. So that's mm -hmm. a little bit hard. And we only, you know, we can't create time. So there's only of so course. much time in a conference. Mm -hmm. So it typically it would happen in like the high priest quorum or the mass meeting of elders people are allowed to speak to calls and that's where they can raise what their concerns right. are. And that information is collected and, and integrated so that the feedback is received by leadership. Okay. So me as a, as a 
lowly pleb as a as a you know a rank and file member of the church uh, of the community of Christ. Um, essentially, what if I'm understanding correctly, you're saying that we wouldn't have time for me once I put my hand up in that auditorium to then go, oh yes, brother Stilgo, let's hear what you your your reasoning is. But my information would be appropriately captured and taken up. So what you're telling me is you wouldn't quite have time to do all the really nice debating that you do that we never get to do. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, we, um, you know, we have to like choose again yeah. what we think are going to be the most contentious issues mm -hmm. and and try to create opportunities for those. But let's go to a smaller situation. Let's talk about like sustaining a pastor in a congregation. Mm -hmm. So those are nominated um, annually. So pastors are considered annually. And, um, and, and it's typically the debate uh, in Robert's Rules is done before you vote. So, okay. so we'd say, okay, we have uh, Nemo has been nominated as pastor. Let's have a discussion about this. And then some people would stand and maybe speak in you know, favor of supporting mm -hmm. you as pastor. Others might stand um, to speak you know, against you as pastor. Mm -hmm. um, and then when the debate, uh, we feel like enough time has happened, then a vote has occurred. So in that regard, when you raise your hand against, hopefully the reasons why have already been articulated. Yeah. Yeah. That makes tons of sense. Um, yeah. <laughs> and we do that at our mid-level, um, we call them mission centers, but our uh -huh. mid-level judicatory. I mean, I've pres presided um, over the sustaining of officers, which we do on an annual basis. And we always open up the floor before we take the final vote. Right. Okay. Um, so I guess the, the ultimate position ultimate position within community of christ would be president of the church and it was really interesting to me that you mentioned that the current president is it stephen stephen vz stephen vz that's the one he um is the eighth which Correct. we've had quite a few more so i'm wondering why why the numbers quite don't align in terms of like how long do presidents kind of uh, preside for uh, and how are they um, voted upon? How are they sustained? Yeah, so um, so they're voted on and sustained by the World Conference. Uh, how their name gets brought forward has been different with different ones. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Joseph Smith III served the longest, and I am not a history student, and so I did not look up all these dates. Sorry. So, so you, I, I mean, a lot longer than everyone else. So if you right. if you go and look, Joseph Smith III would have been the very longest. Um, okay. And then it went to his son after his passing. Mm -hmm. um, in the early days, um, like for the first four, I think it was always upon death. And sometimes there was accidental death. Like, you know, mm -hmm. I think it was Israel A that died in a car accident on his way, you know, from Lamoni. So, um, so in those cases, um, the, they would name who they, um, saw the person that, you know, was coming after them. And then that would get presented, mm -hmm. um, to the world conference in the case of W Wallace Smith, he named his son, um, Wallace B and his son was named several years 
before Debbie Wallace retired. Mm. So you, a lot of times um, in recent years, people actually retire out of the president profit role. And, um, and sometimes then they have named their predecessor and that comes as words of counsel to the, um, to the world conference. And then the body discusses it. Um, We discuss it in quorum meetings and then we discuss it on the floor of the conference. And then there is a vote. Um, In the case of Steve Veazey, Grant McMurray uh, retired due to some health reasons without naming his successor. So um, so there was not a successor named. So the Council of 12 in their role as the second presidency um, did the discernment process. They sought input from the other quorums and from the church. And then they brought forward the name of Stephen M. Vesey to be considered by the 2005 World Conference. And um, and then the conference approved him. So so he's been approved since 2005. We've not voted on him individually since then. He's just been sustained as part of leadership. Yeah. Since okay, then. Uh, it was 54 years. Uh, just oh, FYI. The third? Okay. Uh, yeah, just at the third. Yes, that's quite the tenure. Yes. I, I think the the reason that there are so many on one side and few on the other is that uh, they they start as president of the church a lot younger whereas in the in the brighamite sect you'll they'll become president of the church in their 80s sometimes their 90s and Mm. last for a few years because yeah so you've you've got that turnover because obviously there's a strict hierarchy and they're all stood in a line waiting for the one in front of them to because how old is president vizi now um he's in his 60s Sorry. Sorry, he's about 30 years younger than Russell M. Nelson. Sorry. He's yeah. a whole Joseph Smith younger. If you so want to look at it like would, that. Would the president be uh or I guess set apart and ordained as the president of the church before the vote, or does it all have to remain wait for the vote? No, it all waits for the vote. So um, so the way we understand the calling process, and this is for every priesthood office, including deacon, teacher, priest, elder, is that um, a presiding officer senses the call for someone. They go through the administrative channels to process the call. Then the call gets presented to a um, deciding body. So for some priesthood offices, that's the congregation. In the case of President Prophet, that's the World Conference. Um, the, the body then discusses it and votes. And if the, um, if the call is then supported by the body, ordination then occurs. Wow. That's different. Yeah. It's better. It's better. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. On our side of things, they just do what they want and then they'll put it to a vote a few months later and uh, to hell with the answer. You know, it's it's done. So not much you can do about it. Yeah, well, again, it's, I mean, it also means that we can't change 
positions or fill positions until we have a conference vote, mm. which sometimes can be problematic. Mm. So there are some provisions for having people act as a in a designated role, um, but with the idea always that the conference will ultimately need to approve that role for the person to continue. So, so there are some drawbacks when you're dependent on a mm. conference, especially when you're in a pandemic and having a conference is not the least bit practical for the last two years. Mm. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the other part I didn't mention is the person accepting. So that's the other important step. So a call gets presented. The person has to accept because people can turn down priesthood calls. Um, and and then if they accept, it goes to the body for consideration. So okay. I have seen, you know, I have seen individuals say, the timing does not feel right in my life. I do not feel like I can respond to this call at this time. And so, so the call stops at that point. Um, you know, again, the body cannot approve. And, um, but, but more often than not, I've seen individuals say, I don't feel like that this is the right time in my life because of things that are going on or whatever. Well, I was raised as were many Mormon boys and, and girls mm -hmm. that you never, never even consider saying no to a call-in however large or small whenever it comes mm -hmm. um there there is no other answer but yes how high would you like me to jump um, yeah well i guess that's maybe where common consent comes in a common consent is connected with discernment and mm -hmm. so you know so it's like the presiding officer clearly had a discernment of the call but the presiding officer is human so they're trying to discern divine things you know infinite things with a finite mind and so um that's where the individual's discernment is equally important so maybe we call it calling but truly maybe the calling is not complete until the vote has happened and everyone has agreed that yes this calling is divine for this time can i just throw in a quick segue that will take us into the next section if that's all right pd sure. oh, um, before yeah. we, we don't want to go into the next section oh, just not? yet okay no. it is still connected to this section go on go for it so i was just going to ask about the membership numbers in the community of christ because there's this comparison that the LDS church is huge and community of christ is tiny uh, we know that actually the active membership of the church, the LDS church in Utah, is probably about 5 million, give or take, versus the 16 million that they tout. Uh, and so I was wondering, I think you mentioned earlier 250,000 members, something like that. How do you count that membership number? Do they have to be actively attending or is that members of record? How does that work for yourselves? Yeah, so we, we do actually have both. Um, and sometimes it's very hard for us to keep track of who is active. Mm -hmm. um, so um, so we don't do like annual census or anything like that. Um, so we really are very dependent on local recorders. So if someone becomes, you know, really inactive for an extended period of time, we tend to have them moved into kind of a separate category in the database. Mm -hmm. um, so, but then the other struggle that we have is that we have many countries where record keeping is really not a thing. And so, um, and some of those places are, you know, like for instance, Haiti would be an example. And yet we've got a very strong um, membership in Haiti. So 
the 250,000 plus or minus is our best estimate as to how many we have actively engaged in okay. the life of the church. Um, but if we, if you were to pull up our database, you know, for a congregation in the U.S., undoubtedly the membership that would be in that particular group would be larger than the actual active participants mm -hmm. in that group. Yeah, understandable. Yeah. To be honest with you, Nemo, I think 250,000 people that are actually listened to and feed back to the leadership are far more useful than 5 million people who have to sit on their hands and remain silent. Um, because that's, that's there, might as, there might as well be no one in the room. Mm -hmm. 